If I could, I want to draw your attention to something before we get started. Uh, this is the welcome packet that we have used traditionally in our welcome class when new members or folk, people are interested in membership here at Melanie Park. And uh, I wanted to draw your attention to it because thanks to the uh, generous help and expertise of Gina Sims, we've been able to update this information, kind of give it a new look. And she uh, went as far as to even include some uh, places of ministry where you can plug in and opportunities to be a part of the church family. So I really think it's good for anybody, but especially if you are visiting this morning, this would be a great piece of information that you might want to take with you. So I made some copies of this and put them on the kiosk out where the coffee bar is. And if we run out, there's also a list where you can sign your name, and I'll make more next week if we need to. But I just wanted to draw your attention to that. Also out there, some of you asked about the questions that were a part of our AXIS event on Wednesday, and you wanted to be able to have those to continue that conversation at home and have made those available to you as well. And also there, if we run out, I'll make more. Just write your name on there. But I wanted to let you know about these things. So as we get started, I want to tell you a little bit of what I've been thinking through this week as we enter into this stewardship series that I mentioned to you. Um, I, what I was thinking about specifically is the difference between what it means to be a good steward and what it means to be responsible. So stewardship and responsibility, because I think they mean two different things. And here's what came to my mind. When, when I think about responsibility, typically I think about ownership, right? A good example is if you purchase a new car, you own it. You want to be responsible for how you take care of it. And because you own it, you want to protect that investment as you do the maintenance and things that are necessary. And at some level, there's a sense of pride in what you own because you earned it. It even goes even further sometimes to become a part of your identity. Now, how many of you have ever heard somebody say, boy, that car fits you? That, that's you. I mean, why do you think so many guys drive trucks, right? <laughs> because they're big and strong, and that's the way we want to feel. But here, here's the reality. With stewardship, it's different, okay? Stewardship is different because now you're not caring for something that you own. Stewardship is typically caring about something that you didn't necessarily earn. Stewardship is more often a gift. So if you're a teenager, sometimes your parents may have provided that first car for you. So you still want to take care of it but not out of a pride of ownership. It's more out of appreciation. So how you care for it is a demonstration of how grateful you are for that gift. Your care is a reflection of your gratitude. In other words, you honor the giver by how you steward the gift. So, in that sense, when we apply it to our relationship with God, let me simplify it this way. Stewardship is worship. There's a passage in James where he writes, um, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so when we look at this series, that's what we're going to be looking at, those good and perfect gifts that come from our Heavenly Father. And how we honor him is how we steward those gifts. And that stewardship ultimately is worship. And so we're going to look at stewarding our heart made new by Christ. 
We're going to talk about stewarding our relationships made possible because of what we have in common in Christ. We're going to look at how we steward our finances, those possessions and provisions made possible through Christ, ultimately all belonging to Him. We're going to look at stewarding our mission, our ministries. All these are gifts from God. And, and so how we steward is a reflection of how we worship. So that's what we're going to look at together. Before we do that this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to come to you this morning with a sincere desire to grow in our understanding of what it means to steward your gifts. We really do want to honor the giver of every good, every perfect gift that comes from you, our Heavenly Father. And we want to understand with even more appreciation of how that stewardship is an act of worship. And we want to be faithful to that. So as we walk through this together as a church family, would you just guide our steps, open our eyes, open our ears, and help us understand the things that you desire for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So to think about stewarding our heart, we're going to look at a parable together. So we'll turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, a very familiar passage that all of us have probably read before, but let's look at it with each other as it relates to stewardship. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. If you will, just follow along with me. In Matthew 13, verse 1, it says this. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. A great multitude gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seeds that fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched and became because they had no root. And they withered away. Others fell in thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus loved to tell stories, and especially parables. We learned actually this last week at Axis when we went to that event. They made point, the point, which is true, that over 35% of Jesus' teaching in Scripture is based in parables. Uh, the way I would describe a parable is it's a story with intent. There's a purpose behind it because very often there are truths hidden inside the story and there's stories that people can relate to so much so that they gain your interest and you want to solve the ministry in a sense where's where's the truth hidden inside the story it engages the mind it provokes questions so jesus tells the story in our passage it tells us that there was a great multitude so much so that he had to pull away from the shore sit in a boat because the crowd was filled on the shore we know this is about midpoint through his ministry and so what that tells us is that there was a it was a, a moment of decision for a lot of people who were gathered there they had heard jesus teach and and knew about him so they were beginning to draw some conclusions about who he was the things he had to say and so 
he tells them this parable, the parable of the the soils. Now, as he tells this story, you and I need to understand that that this would have been a very uh, engaging story for them because it uh, involved a topic that they would have been very familiar with. This is an agrarian society, so that means they lived off of the land. They depended on the produce. And so this story of the soils would have had a, an immediate connection with the audience. And the good thing about this story is there was nothing threatening about the story. Nothing offensive in what Jesus had to say. So the people would have been engaged with this parable. Now, in the parable of the soils, the focus is clearly on the soil. It's the only thing that changes. It's the same seed cast by the same person. But that seed fell on different soils. Now, here's where I want us to use our sanctified imagination, okay? When when we go through this together and think about this parable, I want you to picture in your mind what Jesus is talking about because we'll be familiar with this as well. He begins and talks about some of the seed that fell on the road. Now, let's put it in their context. Don't think concrete or asphalt, okay? Think well-traveled footpath, like a trail when you're gone backpacking, okay? Think about that. And what do you know about that soil when you see a path that people walk on regularly? It's hard, isn't it? Hard as a rock. So much so that the seed, when it falls on that soil, is just going to sit right on top. The, The soil itself is resistant to the seed. It's hard. And what's not trampled underfoot, he goes on to say, is just picked up by the birds. So there's no life that's produced from that seed. So that's the first soil. The second one he talks about is the soil that fell within the rocks. Now, here, the soil may be a little softer, so the seed might be able to penetrate that soil. But because of all the rocks, the soil is really shallow. So there's no room for the roots to grow. And then what happens is when the the sun shines, which usually provides uh, food, But since there's no roots, there's no moisture within that plant. And the sun, which is intended to nourish, now scorches that plant and it can't survive. See the picture in your mind? The third soil is the soil that fell on the thorns. Here's what I want you to picture. This is soil that falls on ground covered with weeds. It's covered with weeds. And so even if that plant tried to set down roots, there's no room. Because of all the competition of these other established weeds that are already in place. So there's no space for new roots because of all the other weeds. The only place that the seed survives is the one that falls on good soil. goes on to say that it is protected, it's cultivated, it, it grows so that it produces a harvest. And, and a varying harvest from 60 to 100 fold, the point is that it's healthy harvested because there's fruit that grows from that seed now again as you listen to that story as you picture it in your mind is there anything threatening about that anybody offended by that parable no but don't you wonder what's the point it's a great story but where's the truth hidden inside that story i want you to notice that jesus never explains the parable to the crowd He never tells them the point or identifies the truth built into it. 
And here's why I think that's the case. I think he's planting a seed, just as the story tells. And he wants them to seek to find the answer. He wants them to desire the truth, to, to seek the truth in order to find that truth. He wants them to pursue it in order to know it. Because remember the promise. He says it multiple times in his ministry. If you seek, you will find. So he tells the parable really as an invitation. An invitation to seek and to find. And ultimately to believe. And that's the parable. Now, look at how he continues in verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear. They do not understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of these people is, is dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, return, and I should heal them. Blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. See, the statement of the disciples in verse 10, I think, is a reflection of the fact that they didn't understand the point of the parable either. It almost comes across as a complaint, doesn't it? Jesus, why do you have to talk in those silly parables? I mean, why don't you just come out with it? What, what's the point? That's essentially the way that conversation seems to be going. And so Jesus explains to them. He tells them that you understand truths that the crowd does not. See, God has granted you an understanding of the kingdom, he says. But it's only because what distinguishes the disciples from the crowd is this. They have faith. Their faith precedes their understanding. They were willing to seek Jesus. And they found answers in him. And will continue to. But understand, faith comes first. And then God gives understanding. So Jesus spoke in parables, and, and he did so to create questions. Remember the old commercial E.F. Hutton, inquiring minds want to know? <laughs> it's the same idea here. He's trying to generate interest so that you will seek, and that you will understand the promise that those who seek ultimately will find what their heart desires for most. So to support his point, he goes on to talk about this prophecy being made by Isaiah. And after all, if you think about it, what's the purpose of a prophet? To speak the truth, right? And to invite belief, to, to turn from sin and to trust in God. That's the whole point. Jesus is saying that prophecy being made by Isaiah, 
to speak to people and to proclaim that truth, whether they hear it or not, but to be faithful to communicate is why I came. Ultimately, I came to speak what is true and invite people to believe. And then he described the ultimate desire and goal of he and the prophets and righteous men who have lived from the beginning. Look at the second half of verse 15. Lest they should see with their ears, or see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart. And they should return, and I will heal them. That's the purpose. It's an interesting statement, though, isn't it? Understand with your heart. Wouldn't you expect it to say, understand with your mind? Understand that with your mind, your, your knowledge, your ability? I think what Jesus is making clear here is this. Salvation is not based on what you know. It's based on what you believe. Faith precedes understanding. What we know is that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. What we believe is that Jesus is the Savior and salvation is found in Him. And through that belief, we now have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that understands what it means to be loved by God. Jesus tells His disciples, you'll always find your answers through your relationship with me. That's where the truth exists. So seek me, and you will have eyes to see and ears to hear. And, and then, because of that, he goes on to explain the parable to them. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. That is the one whose seed is sown besides the road. Jesus said that the, the hard soil is what represents those who hear about the kingdom of God, but they don't understand. Now, why don't they understand? It's because they don't believe. Their heart is hard. That truth can't penetrate past the surface. And Satan won't let it linger. He's like the birds. He comes and snatches it away as quickly as he can. In fact, he will whisper in your ear, dismiss it. Ignore it. Don't give it a second thought because here's why. You're doing just fine on your own. This is a category that I think in our culture we might call a group. It's called the nuns. Not N-U-N-S. But N-O-N-E-S. That word came from... Uh, uh, studies that have been done recently, surveys. Um, and, and you know you in the surveys that you often take, uh, they'll ask you about your religious affiliation. Are you Catholic? Are you Baptist? Are you part of Bible church? These are the people who answer that question, none. The nuns. What we know about this group is that they go on to describe the fact that they probably do believe in God, that, that they're a spiritual person, just not a religious person. But there's something beneath this resistance. Typically, 
the opposition to being affiliated with a group, whether it's a church denomination or anything else, is that they're doing just fine on their own. The truth is, they don't want to submit to any authority other than themselves. They're fine on their own. I want to preserve the right to, to believe what I want to believe, to, to do what I want to do. I want to have the freedom to live according to my own set of rules. But here's the problem. Truth cannot penetrate a heart that is unwilling to surrender. Truth can't penetrate a heart that is unwilling to surrender. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He simplifies it down to this. He says there are really two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. Those to whom God says, your will be done. Truth cannot penetrate a heart that is unwilling to surrender. That's the seed that falls on the road. He goes on to talk about the next one. He says uh, in verse 20, And the one to whom seed is sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So the seed that falls on the rocky soil represents those who hear the truth and immediately they like what they hear. Sounds good. It's received with, with joy. But like the first group, notice there still is not understanding. Why? Because there is no faith. He goes on to talk about that. He says there's an emotion of joy. The, the seed might show signs of life, but there's no root. It makes me think of that encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well. Remember that? While he was there, he explains to this woman that he knows of water. That if you drink, you will never thirst again. Because it springs up into eternal life. You remember her initial response? She says, oh, I need some of that water. Do you remember what she went on to explain why she needed that water? She said, I need that water because of how far I have to come to get water at this well every day. How great that would be if I didn't have to come here to get water. Do, do you see her initial response and the joy that she had in that good news? But it's what I call selective hearing. You hear through the grid of your own expectations. Good news is anything that promises to improve my life, to reach my dreams, to make life easier. That's why I think so many in our world today, if asked if they are a Christian, will immediately respond with affirmation. Of course I am. Of course I'm a Christian. But really what, what I think many people are saying is, I know who Jesus is and I like what he says. That's why I'm a Christian. But if you press it a step further and say, but do you have fellowship with Christ? Now I think you're probably going to get one of two responses. The first response is kind of a backpedal. I mean, when asked that question, the, the response is a little bit like, well, that's kind of subjective, isn't it? I mean, I just told you that I believe. What do you mean by fellowship? Or the second response is justification. It's, of course, I believe. I mean, I read my Bible. When I have time, I go to church when it's convenient. I, I, I pray 
when I need to. What was the question? I want you to notice what causes the people to fall away. Look at verse 21 again. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but in only, is only temporary. When affliction and persecution arises, why? Because of the word. They fall away when their life is inconvenienced by their faith, when it costs them something. Now, some of you have heard this story before. It's actually a true story, and, and it really is helpful in helping understand what this point is here. It's a story of a man named Charles Blondin, lived in the 1800s. He was famous because he was a, a tightrope walker, okay? One of the things that he was most famous for was walking across the tightrope that went over Niagara Falls. What was interesting about him is that he didn't just do it once, but he did it several times with an increasing degree of difficulty. So after having walked across, the next thing he would do is he walked across blindfolded. Okay, it's a little harder, right? The next thing he did was he would ride across on a bicycle. A little bit harder, right? This is true. Actually, one time he walked across carrying a small stove, got halfway, cooked an omelet, ate it, and then finished the walk. One time he did it while pushing a wheelbarrow full of potatoes. And then he gets to the crowd, and they were all amazed at what he had done. And he asked the crowd, how many of you believe that I can do the very same thing with a person in the wheelbarrow? And, of course, they were all excited and said, we believe, yes, we believe. So he says, who wants to get in? Silence. Everyone believed until it cost them something. So the question is, did they really believe at all? Probably not. Because their faith didn't go any deeper than what's in it for me. How does it make my life better? How does it make life easier? Jesus said, the one who wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that's the one who will find it. True faith always involves personal sacrifice has to go deeper than what's in it for me. Look at verse 22. And the one to whom seed was sown among the thorns, there's, this is the man who hears the word, and yet the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Again, just like the first two, this is a person who hears with their ears, but they don't understand with their heart. There's an absence of belief. And that this is a time in which there's these competing interests, the, the weeds that, that choke out so the roots can't grow. Remember that? And Jesus even goes as far as to, to name what some of these weeds are. He says, the worry of the world, the, the deceitfulness of riches as examples. But really what he's trying to communicate is that those weeds are anything that feeds your heart and imagination more than than God. Anything that is an absolute requirement for your happiness or your self-worth. Anything so important that you simply cannot live without it. Those are the weeds that suffocate faith and leave no room for God. 
Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. True faith involves humble surrender, personal sacrifice, undivided devotion, ears to hear, eyes to see, because of a heart that believes. Faith precedes understanding. Look at verse 23. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Faith precedes understanding, and then fruit follows faith. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. Obedience is a fruit of faith. God is glorified. God is honored by our obedience. Now, I want you to think back to what we said in the very beginning with this idea of stewardship. Stewardship is caring for something that you didn't earn, right? So, did you earn your salvation? Are you responsible for your new heart and transformed life? Do you own that? Or did you receive it as a gift from a loving Heavenly Father? You see, if you look closely, all that we have is based on all that we receive from that Heavenly Father from whom every perfect thing and every good gift ultimately resides. The giver of great gifts, including the gift of a changed heart and ears that hear and and eyes that see so that through faith you grow in your understanding. And in that understanding, you produce a fruit of a, a life of obedience that glorifies God. Why? Because you are stewarding the blessing of the gift that he has given you when you changed your heart. Hmm. Remember, James said, every good thing, every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. What a great picture of salvation. God shedding light in a world of darkness by sending his Son, who said what? He is the light of the world, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We worship him when we respond in faith and steward the gifts of grace, which the Bible tells us he lavishes upon us. So, to do that, let me finish up by encouraging you in some things of of, of what it might look look like to, to cultivate a heart where the soil is healthy and your faith is able to grow. And before I do that, I want to remind you that this is stewardship, not ownership. These are things that I don't want you to put on the list to check them off because you own them. These are things that he has already done for you that you honor him through how you steward them. Okay? Let me give you an example. The first one is this. Abide in his love. John writes in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. So in order to understand what love is, we must first understand what it means to be loved by God, right? So what does his love look like? 
What are the evidences of his love? Well, in my mind, there is no greater picture than the picture of forgiveness. One of my favorite stories is in the Gospel of Luke. You'll remember this story. It's such a vivid picture of Jesus in a home of a Pharisee, a religious leader. And and in that home walks this woman who takes this alabaster uh, bottle of perfume, very expensive, and and bows at his feet and anoints Jesus' feet with this oil. And, And in the process, she's weeping. And those tears fall and wash his feet. And when she sees his wet feet, she takes her hair and she dries his feet. Isn't that an amazing picture? But here's what was happening. Religious leaders stood around at this very unusual scene. And with some judgment, they thought, what is she doing? How, How dare her walk into this house and do what she's just done? Remember how Jesus responded to that? He says, this woman knows what love is. He goes on to explain, from the moment I walked into your house, you showed no special gratitude towards me. But that's because you have nothing to be thankful for. This woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. You love little because you believe there is so little for which you need forgiveness. So if you want to understand what love looks like, then appreciate the depth of God's forgiveness. When you know his forgiveness, you know his love. So abide in his love. Which relates to the next one. Have a teachable heart. So abide in his love. Have a teachable heart. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. That's because knowledge is impressed with itself. (laughs) Love is more concerned about others. What we need to understand is that as we come together, even on a morning like this, our goal is not to be experts in the Bible. We are students of the Word, learners for a lifetime, and no one ever arrives. Now, I realize that there are a lot of you here who know a lot about the Bible. In fact, there are many of you here who know a whole lot more than I do, and I'm not afraid to admit that. But here's the reality. We need to be careful. Because sometimes our knowledge causes us to become very critical. We are very adept at recognizing mistakes or or errors or false teaching. And that is good. It really is. So I'm not belittling that. But I want to remind you about what Jesus had to say in the book of Revelation to the church at Ephesus. And one of the things he does is he commends them. He says, you do a great job of recognizing error. You know when there's false teaching and evil men. And I commend you for that. But for this one thing, I condemn you. Remember what it was? You've left your first love. And do you remember the solution that he gives? He says, remember from where you have fallen. And do the deeds you did at first. In other words, be humble. Abide in his love by recognizing the magnitude of his forgiveness. And always be humble and teachable as you relate to him and one another. So grow in your heart by being teachable. 
finally, cultivate a thankful heart. I received a text message from God this week. He sends them to me periodically. This is what this one said this last week. It's actually uh, a little subscription I subscribe to, but he sends me Bible verses in first person from God. Okay, here's what one of them said this week. It says this, Todd, whenever you feel stuck in your walk with me, practice saying thanks to me for everything you can think of. That was great advice. Because when we do that, when we turn our attention from our worries and our regrets, we begin to see the magnitude of his blessings. When we begin to to shift our attention from what we don't have, we begin to realize all we do have. Even difficulties become blessings. Doug Kennedy and I were talking about this this week because it's very common for people to say in times of difficult, God will never give you more than you can handle. I believe that's a lie. I believe he does give us more than we can handle. Why? So that we find that our sufficiency is found in him. What does it say? My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is perfected in your weakness. For when you are weak, I am strong. So yes, he gives us more that we can handle so that we can understand that he is faithful and capable to uphold us in the midst of any circumstance we might encounter. He's good and perfect. And every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. With Him, there is no variation or shifting shadow, which tells us it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let me encourage you to cultivate a growing faith with these ideas of abiding in His love of recognizing his forgiveness, never forgetting from how far you have fallen and how much he has rescued you. Be teachable and ultimately be thankful. What a great exercise to just, during your day, recognize and and, and name the things that you're thankful for as blessings from God. Amen? Let me close this in prayer, and then I'm going to invite Carrie to come up for an introduction. So, Father, thank you so much. We want to be a good steward, and we understand that one of the greatest blessings, perhaps the greatest blessing that we could ever experience in life is a changed heart. Not because of anything that we've done or anything that we've earned, because we don't own it, we receive it. It's a gift based on faith in who Christ is and what he came to do. It's belief. And through that belief, we have understanding, eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we can have a heart that is soft and the seed of truth can penetrate and spring forth life and fruit of obedience so that we honor the one from whom the gift was ultimately given. Father, may we be a good steward by stewarding our heart. We pray this in your name. Amen. Carrie?